If you have your Bible, turn with me to Psalm 51. You also can find a pew Bible in front of you, hopefully, or somewhere near you. Uh, and it will also be printed in the bulletin uh, as well this morning. We're going to continue this morning our study through the life of David by looking at a psalm of David, a very famous, well-known psalm, Psalm 51. This is God's Word. Have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love. According to your abundant mercy, blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. For I know my transgressions and my sin is ever before me. Against you, you only, have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight, so that you may be justified in your words and blameless in your judgment. Behold, I, brought, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin did my mother conceive me. Behold, you delight in truth in the inward being, and you teach me wisdom in the secret heart. Purge me with hyssop, and I shall be clean. Wash me, and I shall be whiter than snow. Let me hear, uh, hear joy and gladness. Let the bones that you have broken rejoice. Hide your face from my sins and blot out all my iniquities. Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. Cast me not away from your presence and take not your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation and uphold me with a willing spirit. Then I will teach transgressors your ways and sinners will return to you. Deliver me from blood guiltiness, O God. O God of my salvation and my tongue will sing aloud of your righteousness. O Lord, open my lips and my mouth will declare your praise. For you will not delight in sacrifice or I would give it. You will not be pleased with the burnt offering. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit. A broken and contrite heart, O God, you will not despise. Do good design in your good pleasure. Build up the walls of Jerusalem. Then will you delight in right sacrifices and burnt offerings and in whole burnt offerings. Then bulls will be offered on your altar. This is God's holy word. Let me pray and ask God to help us with this passage this morning. Let's pray together. Father, we bring lots of barriers into this room with us this morning. Some of us are exhausted. It's been a long week. Some of us have just gotten in from out of town. We've been traveling. We've been spending time with family. And we're very tired. Some of us are disappointed that the holidays uh, did not go uh, the way we wanted them to go with family. Instead, uh, there was lots of tensions. Lord, others of us are sad this morning. We bring sadness into this place because we have experienced uh, Thanksgiving without people that we love dearly. Others of us are fearful and angry. Some of us are bored And the list goes on. And so, Father, we need you to come through your Spirit. You have us here this morning for a reason. You want to do a work in our hearts. And so we ask that you would come and remove the barriers just for a few moments. And allow us to engage. Allow us to listen and to really hear your word. Please come. In Jesus' name. Amen. 
We've been uh, looking at the life of David, and this morning we come to Psalm 51. And if you have your Bible, it's not printed in the bulletin, but if you look at a Bible near you or your own Bible, you'll see at the top there are some words above Psalm 51. Uh, They're above most all the Psalms, but they're known as the superscription. And the superscription is important, and it's particularly important here because it tells us what the events were in which the psalm was written. They tell us the background or the context for the psalm. And if you look at the superscription of Psalm 51, you read this. A psalm of David that was written when Nathan the prophet went to him after he had gone to be with Bathsheba. And so the background is taken from 2 Samuel chapter 11 and 12, which we have looked at the past couple of weeks in our series of the life of David. And in case you missed one of those weeks, let me review those chapters very briefly. David, who was the king, the man after God's own heart, goes out on a rooftop and sees Bathsheba, and he takes Bathsheba and has an affair with her. And it's wrong because David or Bathsheba was married to Uriah. And Uriah, which I didn't really bring out as much as I probably should have in this series, but uh, Uriah was a good friend of David's. He was one, considered one of David's mighty men. And so David, one of his mighty men, Uriah, is on the battlefield fighting. In a sense, David, in order to cover this thing up, what he had done, uh, and in order to keep from being exposed, eventually, after lots of other covering up and lying, eventually has Uriah killed on the battlefield. And then he wants, again, to cover it up and to come out um, uh, on the good side of this. And so he takes Bathsheba. He thinks, I'm doing the great thing here. I'm going to take her into my home, and she will be my wife. And so we end chapter 11, and we think, David's gotten away with this. He's going to fly under the radar. And then chapter 12 begins with these words, and then God sent Nathan to David. And Nathan goes to David and confronts him. He tells him a story and basically confronts him in his sin and says, in a sense, you are the man. You are the man that has done this uh, terrible thing. And David is cut to the heart. And he says there, if you remember, he says, I have sinned against the Lord. And so he recognizes his sin and then he gets out his pen in his moleskin journal And he starts a journal entry that is Psalm 51. It's David's psalm of repentance after he had murdered Uriah and committed adultery with Bathsheba. Repentance basically means turning away from your sin and turning back to God. And what we see, repentance, oftentimes we have a really uh, bad understanding of it. We think of turn or burn or... Uh, you know, these billboards that, you know, have fire coming out of them. Repentance is not a bad thing. It's a good thing. It's repentance unto life. And we see David here in Psalm 51 repenting unto life, getting his life back. And here's the question I want us to think about this morning. Think about what David's done. Adultery. He's murdered someone, and here's the question. How do you get through something like that? I mean, think about it. How do you deal with the guilt and shame of something like that, doing something like that in your life? Let me get more specific. How do you deal with the shameful things? Maybe it's not that, 
Maybe it's something else. But how do you deal with the shameful things that you've brought into this room this morning? Well, this psalm tells us. Psalm 51 is the road map back home. Psalm 51 is the road map back home or back to being restored after you have ruined everything and it's all your fault. You see, I am so thankful that Psalm 51 is in the Bible because it is a tremendous encouragement and it offers tremendous hope to us this morning because it shows us that David gets through it. David actually gets through something like that. And that is tremendous encouragement because, listen, if David can get through what he did, I can assure you that you can deal with and get through whatever it is that you brought into this room this morning. See, the question this morning that we're going to look at is, how do you find your way back home? How, do you be, how, how are you restored when you have ruined absolutely everything? Three ways we see this morning. Through being helpless through uh, change, traveling through the heart, and through the healing grace of God, through helplessness, through the heart, and through the healing grace of God. And and let me just say this from the beginning. You hear me say this a lot. Uh, You can't say everything. If you try to say everything about anything, you'll end up saying nothing. This is, again, we could spend from now until March on this passage. Okay, we're not going to do that. We're scratching the surface here, friends. And so notice this is not an exhaustive treatment of Psalm 51. Let's look at number one, helplessness. Look at verses one through three. Look at all the personal pronouns in those first three verses. Eight times we see David, he says, have mercy on me. Blot out my transgressions. Wash me from my iniquity, my sin, my transgressions is ever before me. Notice David doesn't do all the things that you and I normally do when we're dealing with our sin or we're confronted on our sin, which is deflect them. There's no excuse making here. There's no blame shifting. Uh, there's no comparing himself to someone else saying, you know, that other person I know in the kingdom, man, think about the things that they've done. I'm not that bad. Notice here he doesn't get defensive. No, David owns this. David says, this is my fault. This is my sin. This is mine. And here, that's the first thing we see about ever, if we're ever going to really change in our lives, the things that we want to change from, it starts by taking ownership over your sin. You got to own it. Not only does David own it here, but we also see that he names his sin. Look at what he says. He uses very specific words, transgression. Iniquity and sin, to use, he uses those words to describe what he's done. Transgression means to intentionally or willfully rebel against God and his word. Iniquity means crooked or perverse. And sin means to fall short of God's glory or God's standard. And so you see what David is saying here. He's literally saying, I am a rebellious, twisted, and perverse failure. And I can't shake this. He's saying, this is always before me. And so let me try to summarize what David is saying here in these first few verses and really throughout the psalm. David is saying, I can't fix this. I cannot fix what I've done. I cannot fix myself. I am twisted and rebellious and perverse failure. 
I can't clean my act up enough. I can't fix this situation. David is saying, if I'm ever going to be restored and find my way back home, God, you have got to come and do it. I cannot do it on my own. We went to Kentucky for Thanksgiving, and as we were traveling in Kentucky, we were on the Natcher Parkway, which is right off of I-65, which is the way you go to my hometown, and we were traveling, and I told the youth this story a few weeks ago. I was reminded of this story as we passed the infamous spot on the Natcher Parkway traveling to Owensboro, Kentucky. And um, a few years ago, several years ago actually, and I'm just now getting the nerve to talk about this, Uh, but we only had Kate at the time, and we were traveling to see my parents in Kentucky, and it was hot. It was probably 95 degrees. We were hungry, and it's kind of the last stretch of highway before you get uh, to my family's house, to my parents' house, and so we're traveling, and I notice, and there's not much on this road, but it is a highway, and uh, the gas light was on. It had just come on, and in my pride, I'm thinking, I got this. I've traveled. I know how much, how far I can go on this with the gas light on. We're good. We're going to make it. We're going to make it to the exit, and we're going to get food, and then we're going to go see my parents. And did I mention that it was 95 degrees and we were hungry? And so uh, Susie notices the gas light on, and she says, you know, do we need to stop? And No, 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 we're good. We got this. And uh, a few miles later, the steering wheel starts to get sluggish. And we start to uh, sputter, and we're on the side of the highway out of gas. And I'm furious. I'm furious at myself. I'm embarrassed. I'm ashamed. I can't believe I would do something so stupid to put my family in this kind of situation. And then to top it all off, there's no exits even close. And so remember, I'm a grown man here, and I have to call my dad. Dad, we're out of gas. I ran out of gas. Yeah, yeah, I know that was really dumb. And he goes, you know, if you know my dad, he's like, can you say that one more time? Uh, And so my dad comes and he brings a tank of gas and he's coming up. And what's crazy is I used to always judge people that were filling up their tank on the side of the road thinking, how could you do something like that? And here I am on the side of the road putting uh, gas in my car And we fill the tank up and we go on. And I hate that story. But it's such a picture of the way I feel about my life. I so don't want you to know that I'm human. I want so desperately to be perfect. I don't want to be someone who is needy and who is broken down on the side of the road. I don't want you to know that I'm broken. And God sends these kinds of things into my life like running out of gas to remind me that that's who I am spiritually. I'm broken down on the side of the road with my hazards on and I need to be rescued and I need my Heavenly Father to come and give me what I need because I don't have it in and of myself. We see the same is true of you this morning. You're ever going to find your way back home after ruining everything. It all starts with you realizing that that's you on the side of the road too. Helpless, out of gas, with your hazards on. And God has to come and rescue you and give you what you need. You see, that is what it means to come to the end of yourself. 
And we hate to admit that, don't we? We don't want anyone to think that we have needs because we want to have it all together. And so what we try to do is we try to cover it up and we try to rescue ourselves in those moments. How do we try to do that? Well, there are several ways, but let me mention two. The first one is we try to rescue ourselves uh, by covering it up with self-pity and penance, and we try to pay it back, and so we try to be really hard on ourselves and take it out on ourselves. And again, we might not do this intentionally or, or, or consciously, but we start hating ourselves and maybe starving ourselves, or literally, I saw this all the time, and I, I see it still now, uh, people uh, physically cut themselves, And we do those things and we hurt ourselves because we think somehow if I'm just sorry enough and just have enough self-pity that I can put gas back in my tank and I can fix this. Or another way we do it is by just simply being busy. We think if I can be busy enough, then I don't have to really slow down to take a good, honest look at what's going on 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 the inside of me. And so we'll say, I'm just going to stay at the office a little later. I'm going to take more out-of-town business trips, or I'm going to work more up at the school and volunteer up at the school, or I'm going to do really good things like ministry-related things because if I serve more at the church and do more Bible studies, it's kind of a way of me dealing with my guilt, and I can go to God and say, look at what I've done. I'm being really faithful. See, I really am sorry about this. Now will you come rescue me? And what ends up happening when we try to change is we just keep going in circles and circles over and over and over again, and we never really change. And here's why. Because you haven't given up on yourself yet. And I haven't given up on myself yet. And as long as we refuse to give up on ourselves, then we will never change. We keep saying like I did on the side of the road or as I was driving Uh, with the gas light on. I got this. I can do this. I have enough gas in the tank to make it. I promise. And the gospel says, quit. The gospel says you're free to give up on yourself. Why? Because look at the passage, a broken and contrite spirit God will not despise. And so admit that you're out of gas. Admit that you can't fix it. And run to Jesus who can. You see, Jesus meets you when you're rock bottom. That's where Jesus likes to hang out, is in the ashes of your life. Secondly, the heart. We see here that if we're ever going to find our way back home, we've got to realize that change travels through the heart. Look at verse 5. In sin did my mother conceive me. Verse 6, he starts talking about the inward being. Verse 10, notice he says, Create in me not new behavior. Create in me a clean heart, David says. You see, David has come to realize that his biggest problem is not out here. His biggest problem is not his behavior. His biggest problem is his heart. You see, what we learn over and over in the Bible is that our behavior is simply symptoms of something going on inside of our hearts. David's problem and our problem is not adultery and murder and lust. Those things are symptoms of the fact that our heart really is dark and twisted. I had parents call me all the time when I was in campus ministry. And they would say things like, you know, my son or daughter, they've really gotten into some bad stuff. They're doing lots of bad things, and it's because, Jason, they're running with the bad crowd. 
And I would try to find a way to say this respectfully, but I would say, no, it's not because they're running with a bad crowd. It's because that's what's in their heart. And as hard as it is for you to admit, they are the bad crowd. (laughs) See, David realized that he was the bad crowd. And it was the key to him changing because as long as we focus on the behavior, then we're going to miss the heart. And what we learn in the Bible is change always travels through the heart. Look at verse 10. You see that word, create in me a clean heart. And what's interesting here is the word create, this blew me away this week, is the same word that is used in Genesis chapter 1, verse 1. When God is creating the world with a word. It's the same word, creating the world out of nothing. And so you see the point that's being made here, the same power that God had to use to breathe the universe into being is the same power that God has to use in order to change your life. Think about that. And yet we come to God, don't we? And I come to God and say, God, just give me a (laughs) Band-Aid. Just put a cast on my arm uh, just kind of bandage me up so that I can continue to, uh, to, you know, to make it. Just help me to just take one, one more step, and that's not the way God works. You see, when God comes, his work of repair is not a quick fix, but it's a whole new operation. That's what he's getting at here. No one goes to God in order to be repaired. You go to God in order to be remade. Do you see the power of powerlessness, and the helplessness of changing your own life. David is asking for a new life. David is asking to be a new person. He's asking for its priorities and what defines him to change because we see the Bible says that every human being has a sinner, something central to who they are, and the Bible calls it the heart. It's the seed of the emotions, it's the mind, it's the will, it's the soul. It's talked about in terms of the heart. And the Bible says, in, in a nutshell, that the Bible is the steering, or the heart is the steering wheel of every human being. And so unless you change your heart and deal with that, then you can never really change your life and the things that you want to change. We had an apple tree in Oxford in our backyard, but it was a very sick apple tree. <laughs> It was very stumpy, it didn't grow well, it would produce apples, but they would be really hard and small and had all sorts of brown spots on them. And so let's pretend, and this, again, I'm, I'm saying this is pretend, okay, so follow along with me here, but let's say Susie were to come to me one day and say, Jason, what is, you know, we have this apple tree in the yard, what good is it if it doesn't produce apples in order for us to eat? Do something about this. And I say, okay, I'm going to do something about it. So I go into the garage and I get my industrial-grade staple gun and I get a branch cutters and I get a ladder and then I go to my neighbor a couple of doors down who has nice, red, juicy apples and I start picking them off his tree and then I come back and I climb our apple tree and I take my staple gun. I cut off all the bad apples and the bad branches and I staple these nice red apples to the tree. You're saying, that's crazy. Yeah, you're right, that is crazy. Why? Because those apples, if you're looking at it from a distance, you're looking at that tree and going, man, look at the apples on that tree, but what's going to happen to those apples? 
Well, they're going to rot because they're not connected to a life-giving root system. And then next year, when we grow apples again, what's going to happen? Well, there's going to be the same old bad apples growing on the tree. Why? Because it's the root system that is the problem. And if the roots remain, then we'll, it'll always produce bad apples. Could it be this morning that the reason why you have never really been able to change is because you are doing nothing more than fruit stapling in your life? Could it be that the reason you've never been able to change is all you are really doing is sin management in your life? Could it be that the reason why you're not changing is because you've missed the root? You haven't gone deep enough because, you see, to get a new fruit... You must have a new root. How many times in our lives, this is, I mean, gosh, I can think of my own life. Have you spent time worrying and and praying and saying, God, take away my love for money. Take away my lust. Take away my anger. Take away my anxiety and gossip and greed and all sorts of things. God, just please take it away from me. And then nothing happens. And we say, God, where are you? I thought you wanted to change me. Could it be the problem is that you're not going deep enough. That you're only dealing with your sin very superficially. See, if you want to change, you've got to get to the sin beneath the sin. You've got to get to the real thing that you're after in your life. Some of you might say, well, Jason, I struggle. My struggle is materialism. Or I struggle with being a lover for money, a lover of money. That is my problem. But the truth is, having things isn't really your problem. See, we've got to get deeper. Those things are simply serving something far more fundamental in you. Could it be that they're actually serving an idol of comfort or an idol of power in your life? Or maybe you say, Jason, I struggle with anxiety and I worry. Could it be that that's actually because you're actually trying to play God because you're so controlling? And the reason why you are so worried and anxious is because you are controlling in your heart and it's an idol of control. You see, friends, we serve a Jesus oftentimes in our mind's eye that is way too small. And because Jesus is way too small in our life, we look to everything and anything else in order to fill us and give us what we think we need. And it leaves us empty every single time. And so here's my question for you this morning. What are you really after? What are you really after in your heart? Because unless you deal with that then you can try the behavior modification and accountability to the cows come home and it will never work. What are you really after? You see, you've got to start there, and it's when you start there that you actually begin to change. Thirdly and finally, how do you change after ruining everything? Well, you've got to get helpless. You've got to pray that God would make you helpless. Secondly, you've got to get to your heart. And thirdly and finally, we see that change comes through the healing grace of God. You see, David was restored and healed because he understood the difference between godly sorrow that leads to death, I'm sorry, worldly sorrow that leads to death, and godly sorrow that actually leads to life. David, say it another way, David knew the difference between repentance and remorse. 
And we see that, we're tipped off by verse 4. Against you and you only, God, have I sinned. What does that mean? Because you're thinking, well, surely he sinned against Uriah and Bathsheba and Joab and for the whole kingdom, for that matter. Yes, of course David sinned against them. But this is a vital point in change here, and we see it in how David dealt with his guilt and shame and how we must deal with our guilt and shame as well after we've ruined everything. And we see it in the difference between remorse and repentance. Think about remorse with me. Remorse is very self-centered. It's very self-focused. Remorse says things like this. Notice how many eyes are in this. I was such a fool. I was an idiot to do that. Everybody is going to find out about me. How could I have done such a thing? I have undermined my entire family. I've heard everyone. Look at the mess that I've made. That's self-pity. That's remorse. That's not repentance. And notice what remorse often leads us to when we deal with God. It leads to uh, approaching God for forgiveness and saying things like, and that, notice how different this is with David, but going to God and saying, Oh God, have mercy on me. Not because for who you are, but have mercy on me. This is what remorse looks like. Because look at how sorry I am. Look at how badly I feel about what I've done. I mean, I haven't gotten out of the bed in two days. I'm weeping. I'm crying. God, I really am sorry about what I've done. Friends, you cannot use your confession to establish your relationship with God. Any more than I can remarry Susie every time that I've offended her. No, the marriage is intact. Think about this in relationship with God. Our marriage is intact. What is at jeopardy is the enjoyment of that marriage. And you see, the reason why your repentance doesn't change you is because you've simply been dating God. You see, Christians often instinctively think when they blow it big time and they've done something wrong that their forgiveness is in jeopardy. It is not in jeopardy. That's intact. Romans chapter 8 verse 1, there's no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And what we see in this, when we look at repentance and remorse, is remorse actually drives you further away from God. And repentance drives you closer to Him, into the very arms of God. Why? Because repentance is realizing that you've sinned against God and God alone. You see, David got that. He realized far more than just breaking God's law, he actually broke God's heart. And you see this right from the beginning of the Psalms. Notice what David does. He doesn't run to himself. He throws himself in verse 1 on the loving, merciful arms of God. He says, have mercy on me according to your steadfast and unfailing love. And you know what that word is? The word we've talked about in this series a few times. It's hesed. It's God's covenant love. That's the word for covenant love. It's God's word for that he binds himself to his people and marries them. It's a lasting word. It's a marriage word. And so you see what David is doing here from the very beginning of the Psalms. He's basically taking his ring and he's holding it up to God and saying, Look at this ring. Don't forget, God, you married me. You married me. I am yours. I belong to you and you belong to me. And you promised that you would love me through thick and thin and now make good on your promise. You see the difference? 
David doesn't seek change through self-pity and beating himself up. He appeals to the one thing he knows is sure. To the one thing he knows that will never fail him. And it's the unending love of God. And it totally melted his heart. We see the fullness of God's steadfast love begin to be expressed in verse 7. Look at verse 7. Clean me with hyssop. And I will be clean. Wash me whiter than snow. A hyssop branch had long leaves on it that were very stiff and furry or hairy. And they would dip, the priest would dip these hyssop branches into the sacrificial blood. So they would kill an animal, they would dip those branches into the blood, and they would sprinkle it over people who wanted to be clean. And the priest would announce and say, you are clean. You know how many times David had witnessed that in his life? A lot. And David is saying, cleanse me. Like you did with the hyssop branch. Cleanse me with the blood. And what we see actually here is that the sprinkling of the hyssop branch actually points to the greater David, doesn't it? Because it points us to the cross. The greater David, Jesus, who would come and he would die on a cross. And so no longer do we have a table here, or an altar here. We have a table and God in in the form of Jesus, goes to the cross and dies for our sin once and for all. And it's through his shed blood that we actually see in HD, in full effect, the mercy of God for sinners. And so my question for you this morning is, what did you bring into this room? We've all got things we want to change. You have that sin in your life... (laughs) that you struggle with over and over and over, and just when you think you've got it, you struggle again? Or have you ruined everything? And you long to be restored? This is your roadmap. This is the way home. You see, the way home is through coming to the end of yourself and running to Jesus. The way home is through the heart, not through fixing your behavior, though those two go together. And we see here, finally, the way home is the healing grace of God. It is throwing yourself on the mercy of God, just like David, and being washed whiter than snow. Let's pray. Father, thank you that this passage is in the Bible for us. It is so helpful for broken people like us We can't change ourselves, and so we ask that you would come through your spirit and that you would give us the grace of true repentance and not worldly sorrow. And I say grace, that means that we need your spirit to do this in our lives. And so would you come and give us the fruits of repentance. In Jesus' name, amen.